profitability shot up. Revenues went down to 220 million or so, but EBITDA and profitability skyrocketed because you're you're getting rid of all the loss making entities. You're making the rest of the operations more efficient. We also did uh, some heavy reduction in the executive ranks. Hello and welcome to the Happy Dog Soundbites podcast. Today's guest is Paul Fioravanti. Paul Fioravanti works for Corval, which is an amazing company, and he has extensive experience in the turnaround industry. Um, without further ado, let me just introduce him right away. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Perfect. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. So um, generally, I, I'm a turnaround CEO and also a turnaround uh, advisor. We focus on restructuring, uh, turnaround services, uh, general advisory for a mix of clientele. Uh, sometimes it's a bank or a lender, but um, more often than not, it's a company or an organization going through a difficult time. And uh, a lot of times uh, what's motivating the need to engage uh, an advisor or a consultant is some significant change in the business. It may be uh, uh, a material change in the operations. It may be a situation where uh, the company's accounting firm has decided that uh, it's no longer a going concern. They need some help. Or it may be some lender pressures such as uh, missing a covenant or um, or just generally having uh, a, a very difficult time with not only finance but operations. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and to expand on that a little bit, I know you have a very interesting case study um, being the CEO of the complex turnaround of a private equity global CDMO and eventually working that in towards the pharmaceutical industry. Can you expand a little bit more about that specific case study? Sure. The, uh, the case study was a, a private equity owned roll up and big pharma was in the process or actually has been in the process for almost two decades now of divesting their, uh, large, larger plants that typically were, uh, operationally focused on producing blockbuster drugs. And several of those plants have come up for sale throughout the U.S. And obviously, a, a, lot, of the, a lot of the climate for divesting those plants uh, was very different prior to COVID. There's a, a very different demand for uh, domestic production in pharmaceuticals right now than there was, uh, obviously, prior to COVID-19. So generally what what this business model was, was uh, a group of pharma veterans had gotten a a backer to acquire the first plant that came from a a large uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing company, namely Merck. And they went on to acquire uh, seven more plants throughout the throughout the U.S. and mainly Europe. And and there was one in Canada that they were Um, they had closed on uh, with a, a twin plant in Europe, uh, similar to the one in Canada. So if you looked at the, the mix of um, products being made, it was, it was 
really just a group of unrelated products. It was uh, API production, which is active pharmaceutical ingredient. That's essentially a commoditized part of the business where they may be making the uh, the powder or the ingredients to go into something like an oral solid dose pill, or uh, in in other cases related to the the business units they acquired from Big Pharma, it was everything from uh, over-the-counter operations where they'd be producing uh, OTC products to uh, sterile pharmaceuticals, and these would be things like ampules and injectables, etc. So the the challenge was that uh, the management team, I think, just candidly wasn't paying very close attention to the the numbers, the way they were tracking. And uh, when pharmaceutical companies divest these big plants, generally there's a transitional services agreement whereby uh, the new co, the new company, is going to reap the benefit of being able to supply big pharma with a product for some period of time, transitional period of time. Maybe it's two years, three years. But in order to make the CDMO plants uh self-sustaining, it really takes six to seven years to be able to drive new business to those plants. So uh, here we have a profile of a business that's generating uh, three to 350 million a year in revenue and not making any money. Um, 2,000 employees and three people in sales and business development, which seemed to be an obvious thing that struck us right up front, you know, why is there no sales team? In addition, uh, there were some rigid contracts in place where they couldn't really do much with workforce as far as uh, combining units and headcount reductions and things that you would normally do to make a business more efficient. So in the span of a year, um, I led a turnaround team uh, globally to restructure this business. And we started out with doing a deep dive in the corporate operation, which at the time was in New England, and finding out exactly what was happening with the business. And uh, essentially doing a, a, a very focused plan that uh, it really entailed a, got a mix of things, everything from uh, renegotiating contracts with those legacy companies to uh, looking at cost reductions and things like insurance and benefits, et cetera. Um, It was largely uh, focused on terminating loss-making entities. There were some operations that were just generating losses no matter what, and those were projected to get worse. So you you have to figure out uh, how to get from eight sites in the No, there's definitely a lot to unpack there for sure, Paul. And oh um, yeah, a lot to unpack. And uh, getting from eight sites, which uh, eventually got down to four, and uh, profitability shot up. Revenues went down to 220 million or so, but EBITDA and profitability skyrocketed because you're you're getting rid of all the loss making entities. You're making the rest of the operations more efficient. We also did. Uh, some heavy reduction in the executive ranks and we promoted from within. Um, proud to say there were not a lot of uh, headcount reductions and the employees were, uh, despite me being a, an outsider in the industry and not having a lot of uh, healthcare and 
any any significant pharma experience really got be- got behind the effort and worked hard to transform the business um, again it was it was a huge undertaking it was uh, endless travel it was uh, <laughs> endless <laughs> meetings and calls and you know one of the key elements of success was you know, me as CEO, making sure I'm, I'm in front of all the customers, in front of all the employees, and just, you know, being forthright and telling them the situation that we're in, how we got here, and what we're going to do to get ourselves out of it. And it worked. It worked very well. And, uh, you know, they don't always go that smoothly when you're doing a, a business transformation or a turnaround or restructuring. And uh, in my experience, having been in more than 50 of these situations, um, often the smaller ones are the most problematic because you generally have inexperienced managers. Um, in many cases, you have owners that are just way over their skis and either aren't prepared to run the business prudently or, you know, honestly, will will hire advisors or consultants and just not take any advice. They will, you know, fight you tooth and nail. And they're, you know, often they're the dynamic is such that they're looking for somebody to blame. And I think sometimes the advisor or consultant, especially a turnaround consultant in general is viewed as, okay, who is this stranger that comes into our organization? That's, you know, shining the light on our failures. And I think the, the difference between failure and success in the turnaround is the owners and senior managers that embrace the change. They welcome the help. They're willing to say, look, I I don't have all the answers. Uh, I'm definitely in a pickle. This is the situation that we're in. Please help and let's work together side by side. I was in a recent situation where the owner was not forthright at all. He painted a whole different picture of the reality of the business to his direct reports, um, made every mistake that you could possibly make. And this is a pretty experienced person. Um, but again, looking for somebody to blame. Um, great guy, just uh, picked the wrong industry and picked the wrong company to, to, to get into and to acquire. And, and honestly, just didn't want to make objective changes, particularly with his direct reports. Uh, so again, they, they don't always work out. In our case, most of them do. I'm fortunate to have a partner in Corval, um, Jim Malone, who's uh, really a legend in doing turnarounds. Jim has run six Fortune 100 companies and has been called into a variety of situations needing to needed to be transformed by everybody from board members and CEOs to U.S. presidents. So the the firm has a 25-year track record of of getting into these challenging situations. And I've worked very closely with Jim uh, on dozens of those projects. And he will be the first one to tell you that, again, it's, (laughs) it's a difficult dynamic when you are the bearer of bad news and you're coming into an organization and you, you have to explain to the people that have been running this organization that, you know, they haven't been doing it well or they haven't been doing it correctly. And it's best to be compassionate. It's best to be direct. 
And uh, one of the things I always say is, and I've learned this from Jim time and again, is the the employees are really the most important part of a business. And you see that uh, in some cases when you're winding a business down or a business just isn't going to make it, um, when good people start to leave, it, uh, it accelerates that process and it starts to unwind very, very quickly. Because again, w- without your employees, you really don't have an organization. You can have the nicest office space in the world and the best website and social media and messaging. But at the end of the day, if you don't have great frontline direct and indirect employees that are providing service or making product, you don't have anything. And uh, speaking of that, there's often a trap that uh, business owners and managers will fall into where if they're looking to cut costs, they make the mistake of cutting direct and indirect cost, and they don't look at SG&A, or sales, general, administrative expense, and they forget to think about who are the people most involved in making the product or providing the service. And a lot of times they will keep uh, you know, the, the, the so-called sacred cows in the executive ranks, but if you're down to um, you know, a, a down to a bare to the bone type of operation, you really need those customer facing people more than anybody. So that that's one of many traps that businesses or business managers can fall into. There was about 37 sound bites I could pull out of there and expand and make it their own blog posts. I and mean, that was incredible information, Paul. Thank you so much for that. Well, thank you. Um, and you touched on Corval a little bit. Yes. And you you touched on the services that you offer to some extent. Um, when you're tasked with saving a troubled company and returning them to solvency, is there a specific workflow or do you start, let's say, with an audit? I mean, how does this process begin and how does it unfold when we're, somebody is to hire Corval, for example? Well, one of our sayings or one of Jim's sayings that I've sort of adopted as well that I really like is uh, we focus on results and not reports. Um, But the truth is I always do an initial report. And unlike some of the larger um, consulting firms that we we come up against, again, we're we're a boutique firm. Um, But if you're up against, uh, you know, somebody like a I won't mention any names, but <laughs> some of the larger <laughs> consulting firms that maybe also have accounting operations as well. I mean, there are some huge global firms where people bill uh, very high rates. We try to be uh, competitive where we can. Um, but a lot of those larger firms will run a process and come up with this you know, masterful piece of graduate school work that is either incorrect, inaccurate, or doesn't really give the the person that's in distress any value. And I always use the analogy, it's like your house is on fire and you've got somebody that just issued a hundred page report about, you know, where you can find water and uh, what the process is to put a fire out. But, you know, unless they show up with water and start putting the fire out, you know, that doesn't really create any value for you. So focusing on results and trying to be impactful immediately is what we do. 
And uh, again, there's normally the initial assessment report that says, look, I've looked at everything. I've turned over every rock. Here's what we see. And then we make a, a list of recommendations. And at that point, it's it's kind of a, a, a pivotal point in the relationship where they're e- either going to just say, well, thank you, or they're going to say, okay, we need you to get in and dive in a little deeper and roll your sleeves up and get in the weeds, which is really what we like to do if they'll let us. Um, normally what happens at that point is you develop a 13-week cash flow and you develop a, uh, a grid of initiatives is what I call it, where you know it's a glorified – both of those things are glorified Excel spreadsheets – the, the 13-week cash flow is meant to give you a rolling picture of a quarter of the business, meaning a rolling quarter. So as you're doing these, doing this cash flow, updating it every week in real time, you're tracking inflows, which is basically uh, you know checks come in, ACHs, you're collecting receivables, maybe there's a deposit on a project, and then you're tracking outflows, and that's obviously – things like payroll and expenses and utilities and fleet and insurance and all those kinds of things, taxes. Um, and again, if you look at a 13-week cash flow as kind of a living, breathing document in the business, it's the I would say it's the one thing that everybody should do prior to them being in distress that they don't do. And it's normally the reason that, you know, it's a contributing factor to why they are in distress because they haven't really been tracking cash. Um, We had a a, a couple of clients recently that, you know, received PPP money and we deliberately set up separate tracking on, on those funds in particular to make sure that they were, categorically earmarked for the purposes that they were intended for. So again, the 13-week cash flow tracks inflows, outflows, and then it tells you on the bottom of each column what's happening with cash week to week. And what what you see is a clear pattern emerges. It may be that this company is just burning cash. It may be that they're building cash. It may be that you know the cash flow is very lumpy where you know, every fifth week you collect this big chunk of receivables, but you have to kind of manage how you're, you know, paying it out in, in vendor payments and how you're cleaning up the AP. Uh, normally, when we come into a distress situation, the the ARAP ratio is kind of an early warning indicator of what's happening to the business. The What that means is, you know, they've, they've drawn down the receivables or they've collected receivables. Maybe they're collecting them through a bank or a factoring company, or maybe they're putting in, you know, doing a lockbox arrangement with their lender. But normally the, you know, the right ratio is somewhere that's, you know, two or three to one. So your receivables are maybe double what your payables are in a healthy company. But, you know, in a, in a distressed company, the AP or the payables is often this mountain that you have to climb and the non-current payables. And you define that as, you know, obligations the business has, you know, past 60 days or past 90 days. That is very high normally because they've just been dragging. They haven't been able to keep up with, uh, with paying vendors. So often it's a, it's a two or three to one in the opposite direction. So, you know, a company that maybe has, um, you know, $500,000 in 
receivables. Uh, they've got, you know, a million five or a million dollars in payables. That That's what we call the slippery slope. But again, if you're tracking the, the 13-week cash flow and you're keeping an eye on what's really essential to the business, uh, you will get out of that situation eventually. But you know, again, here here in here comes the the owner and saying, well, you know, I made a payment arrangement with this vendor, and you know, I forgot to tell you that I have this you know tax obligation, and oh yeah, we've got three lawsuits, and you know, we have a judgment against us, and you go on this litany of all these landmines, and uh, again, that that all takes cash. Those are all fires that need to be extinguished, and. Um, what what has to happen at that point is a sense of priority, and uh, again, the the lender is most interested in getting paid off or paid down, and if they are the senior secured or even a you know a second secured, in many cases, uh, for example, you may have a they may have a a factoring lender that's advancing on the receivables, and then below that lender in the priority waterfall. There's a second tier lender that maybe has lent on a line of credit or uh, inventory or just, you know, some general instrument. So uh, again, the, the, these are the priorities in obligations, obviously along with taxes. So it, unfortunately for the unsecured subcontractor that, you know, did some work for you months back that still isn't paid, at that point, they're still at the back of the bus, and the the priority of security of, of claims or security uh, through things like UCC filings. Um, obviously, uh, a business in operating in one or more states, you can go to um, their home state secretary of state and look at what obligations are secured against the business and get a sense of. Uh, again, what what are the priority claims in the business? So, again, that this this happens at all different sizes and scales. Uh, in the case of the pharmaceutical company, there was an outside lender that had um, thirty million dollars of exposure. So obviously, they're they're motivated. And one of the oddities we've seen over the years is uh, some of the lenders, big bank lenders that have you know thirty, fifty, a hundred, two hundred million of exposure don't seem to be in a hurry, but, you know, main street bank down the road that has a hundred thousand dollar line of credit, you know, they're, they're ready to pull all the stops and shut the business down. And, you know, I always try to reason with the banks on behalf of our clients. If, if that is in fact the situation and say, look, let's, let's work together. Let's put, invest some time in this and we will do all we can to make sure that you guys get paid. But if you shut this business down today, you're going to be assured of getting virtually nothing or pennies on the dollar because the business balance sheet can't support um, providing any collateral recovery for you. So, so again, it, it becomes a matter of uh, clear and open dialogue. And not every business there – are, there are distressed businesses that don't have outside debt. They just may be um, poorly managed. Years ago, we worked on one contractor that was a specialty contractor, a leader in their field. And their failure point was an owner that just couldn't let anybody go. 
He was uh, late 70s. He, he and his wife ran the business. Super wonderful, sweet, kind-hearted people. Uh, not very good business people. They did have a great business for a long time. And the business went from, I think it was about $40 million in revenue to about ten. And they were still carrying 118 employees. So, again, we went in and did our quick report. We did an analysis of the business and said, you really need 40 to 50 people to run this business. And the owner wouldn't make those headcount changes. And at one point in time had put, um, I think it was over a year, had put $4 million of his own money into the business to keep it going. And I remember one of the buyers that we had brought in had said, uh, do you realize that you just transferred your personal wealth to your vendors and your employees? And he was shocked when he thought about that. He never realized it. But in essence, he was subsidizing the business because he didn't want to make difficult changes. And we see that happen frequently with longer term family owned businesses. They just cannot change. That is quite the story. I can't believe that his own money on a failing business threw it in there. And you probably see stuff like that all the time. And everything that you just talked about may seem very obvious to you that, hey, these people need turnaround solutions. For some businesses, like you've mentioned before, uh, they might not want to get turnaround solutions. And, and there is different reasons behind it. It could be ego, history, personnel, stubbornness, red tape, or the person's too kind or whatever it might be. But what's the, what do you think the biggest thing holding businesses back from realizing they need turnaround solutions? Uh, I would say, you know, failure is behavioral and they do not want to accept the consequences of their behavior or their lack of behavior. Um, normally the situation that they're in is not the result of something they've done. It's normally the result of something they have not done. When the, they finally do engage with you, what is the first light bulb that goes off insinuating that they should have hired Corval sooner? Um, normally it's reading the report and it's, it's us, uh, unfortunately giving them, giving them some bad news and saying, Hey, did, did you know this? Or did you look at that? And again, we're not trying to be, um, experts. We're, we're trying, we're there to help and we're there to, uh, identify things. Again, having been in dozens of situations, we know what to look for. And, uh, there's a certain, um, myopic tendency where uh, people are so close to things, they just don't see them. And if it's uh, a a manager or a leader, even somebody on a shop floor, like we've had great success transforming operations on a shop floor, and they may have a machinist there that's been doing the same thing for 35 years, but doesn't understand um, raw materials queuing or lean or any of that sort of thing. So Again, getting them to, uh, we'll give them some training, we'll give them materials, we will bring in experts, we'll do classes, we will do whatever it takes to kind of open their eyes. So again, it's getting them to take the blinders off and to see not only what's happening, but the upside of changing what's happening by modifying behavior, by changing process, practice, in some cases, people. Uh, normally, the people aren't the problem. Uh, it's normally just um, they're doing the wrong things 
or they're, you know, they're, there's, there's no connection. Uh, it's kind of like the Pareto principle, you know, the 80, 20 rule, they may have, uh, 80% of their, uh, problems related to 20% of their people or 20% of their shop floor or 20% of their customers. Uh, in some cases we will advise them to, uh, have a sit down with their customer and explain what's happening and point out some of the problems in that customer relationship and attempt to resolve them. And if not, there are some customers, this, this sounds crazy, but there are some customers that should be fired because they create a disproportionate amount of problems or inefficiencies or losses or just drama. And um, again, understanding the, the Pareto relationship between uh, the parts of the business that are good and healthy and profitable and, and often is the case, the lion's share of problem areas. So um, example of that, An, another client recently, um, they have 30 customers and 90% of the profit in the business comes from four customers. So essentially those four customers are subsidizing all these other unproductive nuisance type relationships that the company for whatever reason keeps you know keeps letting themselves uh get abused on rather than saying look in order for this to work we we have to raise price or we can't take purchase orders of you know you buying five at a time please give us a purchase order for a dozen or a gross and we're happy to fulfill those orders so they they don't they don't communicate back to the customer. They take this kind of victim stance. And um, what you find is 99% of the time, the customer will say, oh, okay, I understand. I totally, I, I get it. Um, the pharmaceutical example we talked about earlier, uh, we had this money losing relationship with, uh, with Merck, which is a, obviously a huge global company. So I asked the question, you know, why do they only give us a, uh, a volume of 62 million tablets. Can we negotiate for more? And they said, Oh no, we can't, you know, we're happy to have that. And these are the internal people. So I just went to Merck myself and said, look, in order for this business to be sustainable, that's a big word, sustainability. In order for this business to be sustainable, we need a minimum volume of 95 million tablets. And we got through it and they said, okay, fine. We're going to give you the more volume because, you know, we, we want, we want your business to be healthy. And most of the people that work here used to be our employees. We want them to be healthy and we want them to take care of their families. And Merck was a fabulous example of a company that gets it and understands it and realizes that, you know, they are best suited to have a, an open dialogue and an open partnership with a vendor rather than, you know, play these roles and play games. That's incredible. And I'm assuming it's somewhere between 90 and 100% of the time. As soon as those companies do let go of the nuisance clients, the nuisance customers, that there's always the saying, I wish I'd have done that sooner. Is that the case here? Almost all the time. And there's another thing that happens too, which is sort of the flip side of this. Uh, it's the concept of the, you know, the overly benevolent owner that thinks that he can't live without 
everybody in every single part of the business. For example, um, it might be a discussion of overtime. Like one, one client comes to mind, uh, the company was, uh, maybe 32 million in revenue, 30 million in revenue. This is a few years ago. And one of the first things we noticed was, Hey, you guys are paying out a million dollars a year in overtime. Why? Who's policing the overtime? And they say, oh, well, you know, well, you know, the jobs run late and, uh, you know, we have to get the jobs done for the customers. And, well, hang on a second. When you estimated the job, did you include overtime? Uh, no. Well, why, <laughs> why, why can't you do the job in the allotted time that you said you could originally when you estimated the job? What changed? Oh, well, you know, scheduling happens. And, okay, so we start to see this pattern of, the can gets kicked down the road and often the, the last group of customers in a, in a work cadence or work sequence, let's say it's a week or two weeks or three weeks, the, the end of all that work tends to be where the overtime pops up because nobody is policing the daily overtime. So the last, I hate to say it, but the last customer, the last couple of customers, they get dinged because it happens to be the last timesheet that gets filled out. But the bigger problem is, you know, if you hadn't paid out a million dollars in overtime, how much more profitable would you be? And I remember that the year that that company paid out a million dollars in overtime, they had a $740,000 loss, meaning that 74% of overtime contributed to the loss. So if you had just said there's a moratorium on overtime, would the jobs have gotten completed? Probably. And you'd be profitable. So again, um, that's one example. The other thing that we hear a lot of is what we call the, uh, the work fairy, the contract fairy, or the order fairy. And they're keeping all this excessive staff. And in some cases, I've seen manufacturing companies run a second shift and I've gone in those plants on second shift. And, and I, one particular example, uh, was a company that made, uh, HVAC equipment. And out of curiosity, I, I, this was a remote, um, assignment I was on location at, and I went back second shift, walked the plant. I put on my PPE, my lab coat, and I went around the plant and what I observed was kind of horrifying. They had 250 people on the second shift. They had 750 on the first shift. And the people on the second shift had nothing to do because there wasn't enough work to, to run two shifts. So they were playing cards, reading the National Enquirer. Um, I saw a couple of people sleeping on top of finished goods inventory. <laughs> And, and honestly, it wasn't their fault. Um, the CEO was gone at 3.30 or 4 o'clock. So nobody was watching the store. And uh, really, it was a case of, oh, well, we can't let these people go because, you know, the big order is coming. It's coming. It's around the corner. And once that big order comes, it's going to solve all our problems. So that's what we call the order fairy. But meanwhile, you're expending payroll and you're running uh, a plant on second shift that you don't need. So the, the cost is enormous. So in order to spring the company back to profitability are two big winning moves. And normally there are three to five winning moves on a turnaround, but our two big winning moves were cut the second shift and 
increased price because they were selling a product for I think it was a hundred and seventy two dollars or something like that that cost almost two hundred to make. And oh my goodness! They, they never really sort of took apart. Um, in in manufacturing, you have uh, something called a bomb or bill of materials. So it's basically the ingredients list. Like if you were baking a cake, it would be the list of ingredients that tell you, tell you how to make a cake, and it would also tell you what the cake costs to make. So no one ever really took a close look at the bill of materials and said, uh, you know, <laughs> the the cost of the ingredients is more than what we can sell it for. Ah, there's a problem. So. Uh, again, the there was uh, management was reticent to increase price to the trade, but once we explained to them what our costs were, we were open kimono, as we say. You just okay. Here, this is this is our bill of materials, and these are the costs. And we have a commodity problem because part of what goes in here is linked to the metals market. We have brass. We have. Uh, silver solder. We have all these things that go into making this product. Um, and in order for us to continue to be a supplier, the price has to be X. And the CEO's thought was, oh my God, they're going to switch suppliers. And guess what? They didn't. So two big moves, cut the second shift, increase price. Company springs from generating significant losses to profitability. And I remember the numbers were something like um, they did a billion dollars in sales over four years, and they lost, I think, seventy or eighty million, which sounds like a big deal, but it's only seven or eight percent. So if you you know you adjust price and you reduce cost, and you make a twenty percent impact, now all of a sudden you're 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 printing money, and it's not always that simple or that evident, um, but. You know, again, normally the the management team knows the answers, and one of the I think one of the things that you and I had exchanged a question on was, uh, you know, what are some of the uh, some of the the misconceptions about what we do, and one of the expressions I hear that uh, drives me insane is, you know, a consultant or an advisor, somebody that you know borrows your watch and tells you what time it is. And to that, I always say, well, uh, maybe your watch is stopped, or maybe you're not wearing a watch, or maybe you have no clue what time it is, or maybe you don't even know what day it is. So again, we're not there to tell you the time. We're there, we're there to tell you how to maximize time and how to maximize profitability because your resources are limited. And again, you have these inputs into the business. Maybe it's dollar uses, as we say, or it's it's time or it's people capital or whatever the case may be. And you're not doing this for the practice. You're doing it to generate a profit and to keep the organization going. But uh, if you're not going to let us help you do that, uh, then we can't be of any help. For sure. And you had mentioned so many different ways that a business could use your services for turnaround solutions. But let's touch on COVID a little bit. When the pandemic floors a business, uh, specifically COVID in this case, you know, how, how do you help them pivot out of that? Um, that that's a great question. And um, I can, if you give me a second to open a file, I will read you something that I wrote not too long ago. 
again, we, we try to boil it down in terms of simplicity. And the way I described COVID, obviously unprecedented, nobody saw that one coming, or maybe they did. I mean, we can debate that politically, but the truth of the matter is um, it happened. We're still dealing with the consequences. The, the toll on the 210,000 American lives is just horrifying. Um, I, I personally think it could have been a lot worse. Um, it's it's it definitely uh, been mitigated better in other countries. And, you know, it's above my pay grade to try to explain, you know, why or try to understand the numbers. But um, <clears throat> we are a very tr- traditionally a very social society. And obviously, the, the you know, one of the social fronts that we interact on is is work. And, you know, I, I outside of COVID, I, I've always said to companies and, and their owners and employees is, look, you guys spend more time with each other than you do with your own families. Um, and, and that's very true. Um, it, the work is, is a, you know, the work environment is a very social a very interactive front, both inside the organization and as the organization interfaces externally, uh, especially in the case of salespeople or people that have frontline customer contact. Maybe it's a, a waiter or waitress in a restaurant. So the way I've described it is it's about C's. And I've said uh, COVID is a C. It's given business a challenge. That's a C. In the case of a crisis and a chaos, and what you need is control, another C. And I've said that calm comes from control, and businesses need to feel or get back in control by focusing on six other Cs. And I'll I'll just go through this real quickly. So number one is managing cash, right? Forecast the inflows, outflows. Based on a worst case scenario, we talked about the 13-week cash flow earlier. Um, obviously, be conservative. Liquidity in a business is your lifeline. You have to prioritize uh, like basic things. Draw down inventory instead of ordering new inventory. If you've got finished goods, ship them. Um, obviously, if you're running a diner, you can't do that. Um well, you can. You can try to draw down on your inventory in the cooler or the freezer. Um, second is manage costs, reduce all the unnecessary expenses, uh, prioritize. The third is manage credit, and uh, I give a lot of credit to the to the uh, business people that were brave and astute enough to reach out to their bank. This is prior to the SBA programs when COVID first hit. And said, look, uh, (laughs) we're really struggling here. And, you know, I have every intention of paying you and honoring my loan covenants. But right now um, uh, I'm in like about the seventh circle of Dante's Inferno. And uh, here I am in hell and I need some flexibility. And, And, you know, to their credit, the banks said, "Okay, we understand. We get it. You know, we're there with you. And it was different this time around than the way than the posture of the banks back in 2008. You know, on the heels of the Lehman collapse. You know, I remember seeing these you know huge real estate developments out west being bulldozed, and I'm thinking it just makes no sense at all. Like, why don't why don't the banks just you know 
push the payments back so people can stay in the house and have a dwelling and take care of their families and get their next job. And, and it was this kind of like fold the tent mentality. And I think banks learned that during that period. So they've, they've definitely gotten more flexible and understanding. Um, number four is manage communications. So reach out to stakeholders and think about, you know, it's like a dartboard, you know, who's on your stakeholder wheel, vendors, customers, employees, advisors, service providers, the utility company, you know, whatever the your landlord. So, you know, what is your consistent message and how do you reach out to them and explain to them what you're again, being open kimono, being, you know, forthright and saying, look, here's our situation. Uh, we need your help. And I've seen some amazing things happen. I've seen landlords say, you know what? Um, your, your son's tuition bill is due or your daughter's tuition bill is due or, you know, your car is falling apart or you need to pay your, your rent. You know what? Next two months rents on me. Don't worry about it. You know, I'm in this relationship for the long term. I've seen some amazing acts of kindness by business people because they understand. Um, and the last two are continuity of core operations. And, you know, it's easy to get distracted, but you have to make a priority list of what has to keep happening, on what level, when, why, where. Um, group people into key core personnel and non-essential. Uh, there are just some people that you need to run the business. And uh, again, I'll use the diner analogy, right? Um, mom and pop that run the diner, you know, maybe uh, mom or, or dad has to help out either being a waiter or waitress or making the food. There's somewhere they can jump in there and make an impact. Um, again, core operations continuity is critical. Um, you really have to ensure that you, you still have a business and you can't slack on things, right? Like, you know, pay your taxes, register your business, get your permits up to date, regulations, compliance, all that kind of stuff. You never want to skimp on that. And the last one is manage customer expectations. And this is a, a very critical one where uh, the worst thing you can be is an ostrich. You have to reach out to those customers, like all stakeholders, and, and tell them what's going on and, and give them a sense of time frame. Uh, if you don't have a time frame, say, look, I don't know, but you know, my, my objective right now is to stay alive and, uh, and get through it. And one of the things we see happening now is a lot of the SBA programs, the PPP funds, most companies have exhausted that or are close to exhausting it. And that has been a tremendous lifeline, but it's, it's kind of kicked the can down the road for some of these businesses that don't have the time to rebound, uh, depending on what, what industry or vertical they're in. Um, obviously, you know, food service and hospitality and retail has been hammered. Uh, certain kinds of retail has bounced back quicker than others. Um, but we've had major changes in, in people's behavioral and consumption patterns. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things I read about was, um, higher ed, right. And whether you, go to an Ivy league school or a community college. It's the same experience because you're, you're, you know, you're 18 or 20 years old and you're staring into a laptop and you're doing everything virtually. So, uh, higher ed, I think is, is about to experience an enormous shift in their business model because the, 
the perceived value equation has really come come under, you know, we talked earlier about shining the light on something. I think parents are looking at it and saying, you know, okay, so uh, this education is $240,000 and this education is $30,000. What's the difference? Um, and I think the kids are there too. Um, they're frustrated with it. Um, so uh, obviously COVID has created not just, you know, a horrible reality in terms of uh, illness and mortality, uh, but permanent lasting impacts on society, particularly the business community and the way that organizations uh, interact with their customers and their, and their constituents. So um, again, I, I think we're, we're still going to see uh, impacts because of the, the tapering off of the PPP money and uh, some of the, the reconciliation in the marketplace of, uh, of, you know, company business models and the way that they connect or, or don't connect with customers. So uh, that would be <laughs> that would be kind of the approach I would take. Again, just to recap, manage cash, manage costs, manage credit, manage communications, manage continuity of core operations, and manage customer expectations. Six C's. Easy to that's, remember. That's very clear and concise. Do you see what I did there? <laughs> I'm a dad, so I'm allowed to do a dad joke once in a while. My kids poke at me for doing dad jokes around the house, so I got to finally throw a dad joke in a podcast. <laughs> um, no, that was all great, great information. Now, speaking of pivoting, let's pivot to uh, technology a little bit. On the Happy Dog Soundbites podcast, we talk about technology and uh, how that can help or hurt businesses. And, and you're very experienced in what you do. And you do a lot of different things with businesses uh, in all different facets of it. So you must be exposed to uh, a lot of different software as well. So what is your favorite software and or app to use in business? Well, I have to tell you that... Um I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's my most appreciated <laughs> software um, has been Zoom. And uh, I was one of the early users to Zoom because uh, I think in 2016, we had a client that used it for meetings all the time. Um, and and it becomes, uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely a proxy for being there in person, but it's just so valuable. And uh Obviously, the range, um, you can use it on your phone when you're on the road. I tend to do a lot of travel in normal circumstances. Um, I think I'm over 2,000 nights on my Marriott account, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> ridiculous. But it's the nature of what you know what I do or what we do as a firm. So there's a lot of uh, – in normal times, there's a lot of road warrior type stuff. And you're, you know, you're going to different locations. And in many cases, you're living there. You're living out of a, a hotel room. So my other group of apps, and again, in normal times, is I rely heavily on my uh, my hotel apps and my travel apps. Um, oddly, one of the kind of non-business things that's probably my, my most favorite is uh, an app called Pacer, which is about how much you walk and how active you are and how many steps you take and, how you know. I'm not sure how it figures out when I ride my bike, but, but aside of that, um, 
I have a real problem staying standing still, so I'm constantly <laughs> moving. And uh, <laughs> I I very much despise sitting at a desk. So even when I'm on on an engagement, um, you know, I'm on the floor. I'm talking to employees. I'm talking to customers. I'm moving around. And you know, and you have to get the whole story. You know, even when you go when you go to a new location. I always say walk around the back, right? Go go look around the back. If you're ever going to get takeout from a place, always drive around the back and see what's going on behind the business, right? Um, I joke about that, but a lot of times there's a you know there's a different view of reality um, behind the curtain of an organization. But uh, so I love the Pacer app, um, and again, I, I unfortunately have to rely on the travel apps. Um, but I would say zoom is, uh, zoom is number one and, uh, for good reason, it's just become so important. And now that I've figured out Zencaster, I'm going to have to put that one up there to Ryan. So, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um, so you talked about the services that you do with Corval and I mean, they truly are in a good way all over the place. And in terms of, uh, a lot of heuristic analysis, meeting with the people. Are they keeping their eye on the ball? Do they need to eliminate a second shift? What about their accounts receivables, accounts payables? Uh, a whole bunch of different things. And if you had a magic wand and there was a piece of software that you could coordinate all that with or you could coordinate something completely different, what kind of custom technology would you create to help your business or your clients' businesses? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, well, I'll, uh, you asked, so I will. I will answer. So, here's the way it would work, or this is what it would look like in an ideal world. I would uh, have some insight or visibility into understanding. And let's talk for a second about manufacturing. I would have a, a clearer picture of when the order is going to arrive, when the raw materials are going to arrive when exactly the order will ship when we will bill it when we will get paid whether it's through you know again wire ach edi whatever and i realize that you know what i'm talking about is essentially an erp system but they don't always work that well um, in the case of the pharma company the private equity roll-up i think in the last couple of years they had spent I think the figure was $22 million on ERP systems that candidly didn't work well at all. We brought in a, an IT group that uh, worked feverishly to insource um, those operations. And uh, I'm happy to share the name of that group. The name of the group is Phoenix Advantage. They're out of Tampa, um, it's Arun and Bruce, and they have been doing this for a long time and doing it extremely well. And uh, they have a real knack for uh, fixing private equity-owned businesses on the IT side. They're sort of like IT turnaround guys for PE firms, if that makes sense. But they're mm-hmm. very astute on the application side. And again, back to my example of the, the ideal ERP-type solution. The, the challenges that most uh, manufacturing businesses have, in, actually in service businesses, I'm thinking of specialty contractors that manage workforces in the field. 
Maybe it's a company that's uh, building or working on cell towers or they're laying pipelines or they're doing concrete work or, you know, one of the trades. The, the challenge is always um, forecasting the demand for their services um, and, and managing the cash flow of the project. Um, let me give you another example. In civil contracting, civil a civil construction company, margins are extremely thin. Uh, let's talk about a company that maybe is building a tall structure or bridge and highway work. Uh, tall structure may be built out of steel or what's called cast in place, where they're essentially molding the floors out of concrete floors and beams and support structures. So there's a there's essentially a, a schedule that has to be maintained. And they use different software that does job costing to track parts of the work. So it might be, uh, you know, they're building a new Marriott hotel or Hilton hotel and, uh, it's got 27 floors and every floor has 10 rooms. So you have to make 270 bathrooms plus the two or three in the lobby. So, uh, Again, the, the bathroom or HVAC contractor, plumbing contractor, they have a handle on exactly uh, what fixtures, how much tile, how much labor, how much raw piping. So uh, the challenge becomes uh, all the, the unforeseen circumstances, time delays, material delays. So if there was one system that could sort of track that and tie out uh, all the operational work that has to happen, the scheduling, and map it seamlessly to the accounting, that would be great. And I know there are a lot of software products out there that say they do that, but they don't typically do it well. And uh, again, part of the reason that companies fall behind is is timing. They just the sequencing of things, the interruptions, delays, right? That That's a big factor. Now, in a manufacturing environment, here's the wish list for the, the guy that owns the factory or the guy that manages the factory or the salesperson who's talking to the customer. You give me an order today, I need to be able to tell you that, okay, if the, the order came in on Thursday, October 8th, it will ship on you know, such a day in November, right? Or it'll ship uh, a week from today on uh, Thursday, October 15th. Uh, and it'll ship at 3.55. And we will have, um, you know, two extra units or we'll be shy two units. So that, that kind of laser-like precision uh, on several fronts, timing, production, the financial side of it, the accounting, the billing, if you could predict that and be able to tell a customer exactly when it is going to arrive, boy, you'd be a very popular supplier and vendor. And it's fascinating to me that you can go order, you know, coffee Keurig cups on Amazon and they will tell you exactly when they'll land on your doorstep. But uh, somebody's building an airplane and they don't know when it's going to be ready or a submarine. It's, It's just fascinating to me. <laughs> Me too. And you touched on some pain points. And 
in your industry, there's considerable technological pain points, I'm sure. Some people have mentioned subpar websites or there's client portals that aren't user-friendly or just software in general just isn't user-friendly. Or when failing companies merge with each other, merging their software and websites are a nightmare, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of different things you could probably touch on. But what would you consider a technological pain point in your industry to be? In my industry, oh boy. Uh, hmm. Well, I could look at this a few different ways. So there's, you know, the, the subset of what I do and where I work, you know, within the advisory consulting management consulting type space. Um, that's one thing. But most of what we deal with is customer related. So what I see uh, are a lot of very poor websites um, and a lot of websites that are not very interactive. And my feeling is if you're going to be selling a customer um, or, or you're, going, you're going, well, let me back up. You're going to be selling somebody a product or a service, then it has to be dynamic. It has to be persuasive. They have to want to do business with you. And frankly, there's just a lot of plain vanilla you know, phone book grade websites out there that just kind of give the basic information. And I think the the roadblock is is a mental block. It's the owner thinking that oh, all I have to do is check the box and just put a basic website up there. But the problem is the the nine guys you compete with, and maybe seven of them have a fabulous website. And if somebody's actually shopping around, they're gonna be like, ha, hmm you know, these guys seem to have it together and I can see pictures of, you know, the, the product that I need them to make and I can see their workforce and I can see the shiny floors and I can see the pride. Um, you know, industry culture is a huge factor and it, it comes through in communications. It comes through in presentation of things like employee dress and uniforms and vehicles. Um, I've done a bunch of work over my career with contractors and service companies in the construction and trades. And the ones that grow and are sustainable and are successful, you can see it in the culture. You can open up a door on any vehicle in their fleet and it's pristine. And the ones that fail, uh, it looks like cattle were raised in a you know two year old pickup truck, and the guys never changed the oil. And you know there's there's just a, a culture problem. I, I remember sending an employee home in one of the companies that I was running. He was wearing a competitor's shirt because he used to work for the company, and he he hadn't done his laundry, so he wasn't wearing you know our company's shirt. And I said. Uh, our colors are red and black and your color, why are you wearing a green shirt with the name of the competitor down the street? So I sent him home. And, uh, <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, but it, it's just fascinating to me. But you'll see other instances where uh, I remember working for a company early in my career uh, run by a, a guy that came out of Stone and Webster. He was a military officer in World War II and he was a fanatical manager, stellar CEO company had, um, it was acquired as a public company, but, uh, we had, a, I think the longest running track record on the Amex of consecutively paid and increased dividends. 
uh, company was uh, not a huge company, but very profitable. And uh, one of the peculiarities of HR at the time was you had to wear uh, a tie, suit coat and tie, and you had to wear your coat at your desk and you could not have facial hair. And they had a, they had a gauge that HR would put, this is in the you know mid nineties. It wasn't that long ago. HR had a gauge that they would put over your ear to make sure that your sideburns were not too long. Uh, but again, very rigid military type culture, but the company ran like a Swiss watch. Um, and, uh, you know, was consistently profitable, but he set, he set expectations, right? And you've heard, uh, you've heard the famous, um, the famous quote, right? Um, <laughs> culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Peter Drucker. And mm-hmm. it's true. You, you know, bad culture is, is evident. It permeates uh, every part of the business. So uh, again, what I want to see is that, that positive culture emulated everything they do. Um, you see it in Florida in the service industry where the companies that grow and are very successful, uh, I'm thinking of some of the guys in the, uh, the air conditioning business, the, the, uh, the pest control business. These are the guys that come and the truck is immaculate. Everything is organized. They, if they come in your home or office, they put booties on. They're on time. They have an iPad. They're using technology. They can have the customer sign in real time. They can upsell the customer and get more revenue. They can show them what something looks like, or they can show them brief contract language on the iPad and say, look, uh, you don't know about this extended warranty that we have, but for $150 a year, you can get this, 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 this. So those are the guys that are going to survive because they have it figured out. They have it dialed in. They've done the work. But, uh, you know, if you show up, uh, I was, you know, the, the image that comes to mind in one particular company that I worked on was a telecommunications company. And these are the guys building infrastructure. And it looks like the scene in Fast Times at Ridgemont High where the VW bus pulls up and Spicoli gets out with his friends with all the smoke. You know, these guys were just not ready for prime time. Um, but you know, they're, they're the guys that are up 200 feet in the air, you know, working on a cell tower. And, you know, one of the employees that failed the drug test told me that, um, the first thing he did when he climbed the cell tower was he had to light up a joint because it calmed him down. And I said, why do you do that? Uh, aren't you concerned about putting the owners of this company at risk? And Oh, by the way, you're fired. And his answer was, uh, I'm afraid of heights. And I, the last thing I said to him was, I think you need to find a new line of work. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Um, I'm going to backtrack just a hair and talk a little bit about what you were mentioned at the beginning is sometimes there's some subpar websites and we've worked with billion dollar companies that have spent more on the chairs in their conference room on their website. And it completely blows my mind that, uh, it's treated as like, as just, as you said, check the box, I'll have my friends, nephews, friends, company make it for, you know, just $5,000, throw something up real quick and call it a day. And, and it does them such a disservice and they have no idea. Is this what you see as well? Very common. And a lot of times it's, it's big companies that spend big budgets. Um, I mentioned the pharma company. So 
uh, think about this. Let's put this in perspective. So we, we have a 350 million revenue pharma company. They, they have luxurious office offices. They have, uh, duplicate people all over the world. They have, I don't know, 18 people with an EVP title. Uh, they probably spend, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year on coffee. Right. Mm-hmm. And they have 2000 employees. They have to figure out how to drive business to these plants as quickly as possible because they're, the real problem is they're running plants at somewhere between 25 and 35% capacity. And the, the clock is ticking on those contracts. So they have to get outside work. And to onboard a tech transfer or a new pharma project coming aboard to a pharma plant is usually, uh, if you're lucky, it's a 12-month process. It's usually an 18 to 24-month process. And during this time, they have, out of 2,000 employees, they have three salespeople, and they have uh, a marketing agency that's doing subpar work that they paid a million dollars a year to, and the website is horrible. So... What's the fail there? The fail is your sales and marketing is not a priority. Even though you're throwing resources at it, it's not working. And the website isn't telling or convincing anybody to do business with you. And you don't have enough people to cover the necessary number of leads to drive new business to to the operation. And so – what we did was we hired a stellar recruiter. We built a sales team out to 10 and we fired the marketing agency because they were expensive and they weren't very good. And we made the changes to the website internally and used some low cost partners. So it wasn't about cost. It was about getting people that had the mindset and the vision to properly align the website and properly align the external sales force with customer expectations so that we could establish credibility and be invited to the party, so to speak, to be able to bid on contracts to, to drive more, uh, more opportunities to the company. And the irony of the whole thing was after I had left, uh, one of the board members, um, who was, uh, just somebody I candidly I didn't really see eye to eye with. He decided that uh, the company didn't need a sales team, so they let most of the sales force go, which didn't really make any sense to me. But uh, again, just because you're on the board of an organization doesn't mean that you know what you're doing. Um, so again, bad governance. That's we can talk about that one all day long. But bad governance is also a big issue. And we see that in a lot of situations, particularly uh, family businesses where, you know, they spread around. I was in one of these situations not too long ago where they spread around equity to, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins and nephews and nieces and grandparents. And, and everybody had a say, but nobody wanted to work. And the, the problem was the, the governance put the business so far afield of reality that they had to call in a distress call. This was a long-established manufacturing company. 
and they had to sell their soul to an outside lender to take in $70 million of debt financing to keep them afloat until they could figure something out. Um, but we see that all the time. And uh, candidly, you know, private equity, uh, private equity really, I mean, private equity increasingly is owning everything. And the folks in private equity generally do a stellar job uh, running, fixing, optimizing businesses. But there are some that, uh, just some projects we've worked on in particular where uh, private equity guys are terrible operators. And some of them will admit that. They'll say, look, I, I'm really good at kind of structuring the deal. And I, you know, I, I know what I want to do as far as doing a roll up and buying the company, but keep me out of the operations. But we've seen uh, several circumstances where they've put a private equity person in charge of an operation, in some cases, you know, pretty young, experienced, inexperienced people, and they've made a giant mess out of things. So, um, again, if you're a PE firm, you need to know the limitations of your firm and the limitations of some of the, the you know, the people in your, in your stable. And if somebody's not a good operator, you know, don't put them out there. Makes sense. And with that, I would like to do one last pivot and go to what I like to call the lightning round. The lightning round are just a few random questions that I'll throw at you in that really short, brief answer, one sentence answers uh, off the top of your head. There's no wrong answer, but uh, it's just getting a little bit more, uh, knowing a little bit more about you. So you ready to go? I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of scared, but I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The first one's an easy one. What's your favorite food? Oh, my favorite food is is Italian food, but um, I've been a vegan now for about. No, I shouldn't say a vegan. I'm not really. I don't eat meat. I don't eat red meat uh, or pork. I will eat chicken and fish, but um, I would say um, my favorite food is anything Mediterranean, like a nice uh, nice piece of fish with a nice salad, glass of wine, something simple. I'm pretty. I'm pretty low maintenance. <laughs> Okay. What's the most used app on your phone? Oh, it used to be the Marriott app because it was constantly reserving hotels or some. (laughs) (laughs) But lately, I think it's been the Zoom app, actually. Okay. If you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? It would say, keep your eyes on the road. I no, like it, I'm just kidding about that. Um, it reminds me of uh, when you asked that question, it reminds me, I don't know why, but I, I was instantly teleported back to being about 10 years old. And uh, I grew up with four siblings uh, and my parents and grandparents in our family business, which was a supermarket in the Italian section in Providence, Rhode Island on Federal Hill. And it was a wonderful place with fabulous customers and people all around. It was a great, it was a great time to grow up. And it was a, just an amazing backdrop to learn business and life lessons. And I'm eternally thankful for that. But one moment comes to mind, and that is when uh, I always like to draw and paint whatnot. And I remember putting a sign up in the window that said free. It just said free. And my dad was out at the market, you know, picking up wholesale items. When he came back, he was kind of ticked off. Like, why did you put the sign in the window? And what do you mean by free? And 
people were coming in and just saying, well, what is the sign? What does that mean? What's free? So the joke was, you know, it created a lot of confusion, but boy, it really drew, it really brought people in, you know? So it would be interesting to see a billboard on the side of the highway that just said free. That would be interesting. Hmm. Uh, and you kind of segued perfectly into my next question about going back in time. Cause if you could turn back the time and talk to your 18 year old self, what would you tell him? Oh boy. Um, I would say, um, you know, there's no hurry. Like I, I was just in a hurry to do all the things that you're supposed to do. You know, um, I would maybe travel more. Uh, I would probably work less. Um, I'd probably buy some, you know, stock in some obscure companies like Apple and Microsoft, <laughs> things like that. Um, but I would, I would try to explore the things that you can try at 18. Um, maybe it's, you know, hobbies, maybe it's travel, but, you know, experience the world and, and not be in a hurry to just get in the groove of going to school and going to work and everything else. And I think if you speak with most people in their forties, fifties, sixties and later, and you'll get a sense that clearly life is nonlinear. My mother used to say that, uh, man proposes and God disposes, right? So you start out with this plan and things change, right? And I always tell business clients that, you know, it's it's okay that your plans didn't work out. It's okay that things change because that's the nature of it. It's a very uh, entropic, chaotic kind of a, a, a thing that we're in, this thing called life. Um, but, you know, I have two sons. Um, one is 20 and one is 22. And I tell them all the time, it's okay to change your mind, right? Like you, you don't have to stick with a major or whatever because a person in their, again, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, maybe they don't know what they want to be yet. So don't put so much pressure on yourself and enjoy being a kid. You know, a lot of kids just don't know how to be kids. Uh, what's fascinating to me is think about this for a second. You never see kids riding bikes, when I was a kid, you know, just kids everywhere on bikes, no helmets, you know, doing wheelies, stuff like mm-hmm. that. But yeah, I agree. And that same here grew up that way. And when the street lights came on, it's like, oh, now it's time to come home. And you you bike to your house, and that was that. And times have changed a little bit, but uh, that's great advice that you'd give to your eighteen year old self, and and now to your your sons as well. Uh, now, going from the past to the future, what does your future hold? Well, we don't, uh, you know, we don't get to see that, right? We, as the saying goes, uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. So we do the best we can every day. And right now I'm focused on uh, trying to help clients get through difficult times. Um and also, uh, we, we are doing a major transition in the firm at Corval. Um, actually, there'll be a release going out today that uh, I'm, I'm going to be taking over the role of CEO. And Jim Malone is going to become um, chairman emeritus and founding partner, of course. So I, I think we are going to be crafting our own business plan for the firm 
to figure out uh, how we can be more efficient, how we can be more impactful. And uh, there's a lot of opportunities out there that we're being called to look at. And uh, I'm very anxious to be able to to help you know business owners and, and managers through difficult times. Um, one of the things I'm consciously pursuing this year is, is trying to uh, get more involved as a director on some boards. Uh, I feel like I have a lot to contribute because I've been through so many different situations and have absorbed uh, so many lessons, uh, my own and, and the lessons of others. And I feel that uh, that has a lot of value for uh, early stage businesses as well as uh, mid and late life cycle businesses that are going through unique challenges at any given time. Paul, that was amazing. And lastly, and this is most importantly, how do people get in touch with you and Corval? And they'll say right now it's Corval with a Q. So maybe you want to give some specific information on how people can get in touch with you. Sure. Happy to help. Um, our, our website is Corval, Q-O-R-V-A-L. The name comes from Core Values, even though it starts with a Q. It's Q-O-R-V-A-L. There's no U in there. Everybody wants to put a U in there. <laughs> um, you can also call our main line, which is, uh, we have two numbers. It's 239-430-0303 or 239-588-0008. Or uh, you can email me directly, which is Paul F at corval.com and always happy to talk with people uh we always say you know if we can't help you we can usually point you to somebody that can and uh the kind of stuff we do isn't isn't right for everybody honestly a lot of the clients uh, that we look at sometimes we just realize that you know either they they can't afford us which is not necessarily a monetary thing. They, they may not be able to deal with uh, the level of scrutiny, the level of change, the level of candor that we often bring to a situation. They may just not be ready for that. Um, in some cases, they, they don't have the budget for anybody. They don't have the budget for paying themselves. So uh, that creates a challenge. I mean, we don't like to work for free. Uh, but if, you know, I'm happy to have conversations with people, if they can, you know, give me a sense of what they're, what's going on in their business, I'm happy to help them and say, look, here's what you, here's what you need to kind of look at and dig deeper into. So, uh, again, I'm always happy to help. Um, I believe in, um, in paying it forward and, and helping, helping people because ultimately, uh, you know, it's, it's families, it's, it's, uh, it's children, it's, it's taking care of each other. So, I mean, that's why we're all here. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute blessing having you on and I'm looking forward to talking to you soon. Thanks so much, Ryan. I really appreciate everything.